two chapters from finishing uh, the book of Acts. And, and by the way, just because uh, the, the, the series title will change and we'll go on to something else, um, the, the desire is the same, the goal is the same. We want to be his church. We don't want to just be a church. We don't want to be um, the church, a big church, a small church. We're not even thinking about that. We want to be, we want to be his church. And we want to have the, the characteristics of his church. And we've looked at that through the book of Acts. And we've seen throughout the book of Acts, we've seen his church is like, they're, they're led by the spirit, but they're grounded in the truth. It's, it's not one or the other. It's both. But we also see in the book of Acts, we, we see this, this importance of, of the community of faith. You know, the, the last, um, you know, the last half of the book of Acts, you know, a lot of it's focused on the person of Paul. But I don't want you to miss, I don't want you to miss that it's not just about Paul. Paul is in some ways this incredible person, kind of a once in a lifetime, once in a generation kind of person. But it's not all about Paul. Paul doesn't do anything that he does without the church being there, without others pouring into his life, walking with him, equipping him. We're going to see when we read Paul's letters how Paul understood what was happening. It wasn't just him out there, you know, you know superstar Christian. It was him walking with the church. And so, when we talk about becoming his church and being his church, we understand that, that, that it's building these characteristics that we find in the book of Acts, but it's also about doing the, the task that's put before the church then. It hasn't changed. Our, our, our task is to bring the gospel to the world to bring the truth of the gospel to the world. And that truth is, yes, the words we say, but it's the lives we live. And the world has always needed this truth. And I don't think it's ever more abundant than it is today. Now, you might not have felt the same way as when you watch your favorite you know, TV show and then the series, the season's over and they leave a cliffhanger. And then, oh, what's going to happen next? You know, maybe you didn't feel that way last week, but you should have. Because there they are in the middle of this terrible storm, and that pastor just ends the story. Right? Doesn't tell you what's happened. They're, they're still in the storm. This storm is still raging. It's still dark. They're being tossed to and fro. They have no idea where they are. They know they're getting closer to land, which doesn't make them feel good. It makes them feel they're getting closer and closer to crashing. And so this is where this story begins. Keep that in mind. Don't get in your mind that all of a sudden everything's calmed down and then this scene takes place. No, it's while the, the waves are pushing the ship, you know, coming over the bow. It's in the midst of this desperation that we read this. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, 
Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship, and so it was that all were brought safely to land. If I was a better actor, and I I could have read verse 33 the way Paul actually said it. Because if you're thinking, wind is howling, Waves are are crashing. It's dark. You're thinking that's what's happening. He, He didn't say it the way I said it. There were about 300 people on the ship. He's like shouting this out so they all can hear. It's not like this nice, calm little scene. And in in the midst of this. In the midst of this huge storm, Paul says, hey, guys, we need to eat. We haven't eaten for two weeks. He probably maybe thought, some of you probably needed to take a little two weeks off of eating. But really, we haven't eaten for two weeks. We need our strength. He knows day is coming. He knows that when day is coming, now they're no longer going to be tossed by the, the sea, that they're going to have work to do. They're going to have to get this ship as close to the shore as possible. Let's eat. Let's eat. And then, in the presence of awe, it says he took the bread and he gave thanks. And then he began to eat. And there was something about what Paul did that made the rest of them go, all right. And they began to eat too. We've seen this transition that's happened with Paul. Paul has become the unofficial leader of this, of this ship during this crisis. He started out with, at the very beginning, they don't want to listen to him. He tells them what they should do. They don't want to listen to him. Now, they're following his lead. They're doing what he says. In fact, it's later going to say, he ordered them, and they do it. Luke is telling you this remarkable thing that happened, not because Paul asserted his authority, 
but it's because Paul was faithful. He was faithful. He, God had given him this clear vision. He knew it was going to happen. He was faithful to it every step of the way. He, he is confronted and compared to all the other things that we, you know, the, the, the forces in the world. And I'm not talking about the, the weather. You know, last week we, we saw the sailors trying to escape. They're trying to escape. They're just thinking of themselves and their own survival. You know, forget what happens to the, to the others on the ship. And here near the end of this, we see the soldiers, again, thinking of themselves, thinking that they know the, the, they know the law. The law is whatever the prisoner's sentence is, if that prisoner escaped, they would have to pay it, whether it meant being imprisoned, being fined, or even being executed. They know that, so what do they do? They think of themselves. They think of themselves and say, you know what, we're going to make sure no one escapes. And so they're about to kill all the prisoners, including Paul, the guy who basically got them through all this. And we get in this story, we get Paul being shown as like this paragon of faith, faithfulness, love for others, not just thinking of himself. And then we have everybody else either afraid or just being self-centered, self-interest. My wife and daughter and I, we watched a movie last night, and I'm not going to tell you the name of the movie, but you probably can guess. But, but the movie was, in, it was supposed to be funny, and it was supposed to be kind of um, poignant, and it you know, communicates this really kind of you know, tender lesson, and it does all that. I'm not going to say it doesn't do it. But it's also like the saddest, most depressing but most honest movie I've seen in a long time. Because the, 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 the premise of the story, which is repeated multiple times, and, and, it's, and it's said by this, this character who is able to see every possible versions of herself, every possible you know, universe that she exists in, she can see them all at the same time, and this is her conclusion, okay? The conclusion is this, nothing matters. Nothing matters. And the whole story is not refuting that. That is presented as truth, nothing matters. The other characters trying to save her, they still accept the view that nothing matters. They just add to it something. What they add to it is, nothing matters unless I decide that something matters. And then it's okay. And if I decide that, in this case, love matters, it's okay. Because I know that in the, the true sense, it doesn't matter. 
And the reason I say this is an honest movie is because it's actually making people play out what the dominant worldview, especially in the West, what the dominant worldview is. We came from a cosmic accident. Everything we know is going to end in a cosmic accident. Nothing matters. Nothing matters. You know, I've said this before. The, the place where you want to see the most lies, go, to the, go to, the, to the cemeteries. You know where it says eternal resting place? It's a lie. You know how I know it's a lie? Because how many times, you know, I, I watch a lot of archaeology kind of shows and all this, and then, you know, you don't hear about this as much, but you still hear about it here, where like, oh, they're going to put a, a parking lot down in Baratania. Oh, guess what? We found a graveyard. Do you think those people, when they were putting their loved ones there, that they were thinking, someday it's going to be forgotten that this even exists, that they, they were going to cover it over with a building, and they're only going to find it by accident? It's this admission that nothing matters if you believe cosmic accident started it all. Cosmic accident ends it all. And the best we can do, the kind of the message of the movie is the best you can do is just generate within yourself some kind of thing you believe makes it worth it to even care in the day-to-day. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you that if, if the truth were cosmic accident here, cosmic accident there, that's the best advice I could give you. Find something to care about and please care about it and try not to make it something that hurts people. That's the best advice I could give you. Just love the people who are around you, care about them. That's the best advice I could give you. I'm so glad I don't believe cosmic accident to cosmic accident because I can do more than give you advice. I can share with you an completely different, radically different understanding of, of our existence. That there is a God who loves you, who created you, and even when you rejected him, made a way for you to come back. That God created you out of love. And he created you for a purpose. And it's not a purpose that you get to make up. It's a purpose he has given you from all eternity. That is the most fulfilling way you could ever spend your time on this earth. There's another story. But sadly, sadly, many people are just rejecting that story more and more. They're rejecting that truth more and more. But unlike this movie, they're lying to themselves. Because they still accept the cosmic accident to cosmic accident. But what they still believe 
is they still believe that all the problems we face in humanity, that if we just work harder and we just work smarter, we can solve them. And I'm like, do you not pay attention to history? Do you not see attempt after attempt to work harder and smarter, to work harder and smarter to make somehow society better? It doesn't end well. It never has. And, you know, we, we, we get this. We get that hard work and intelligence without true love, incredibly dangerous. Incredibly dangerous. You see, when, if, if we're not going to acknowledge that the problem isn't our technology and the problem isn't our effort, but the problem is the condition of our heart, that's the problem. If we're not going to acknowledge that, then as we're moving along, we may fool ourselves into thinking we're loving, but we're going to be more and more willing to take shortcuts. We're going to be more and more willing to make some people's lives more important than other people's lives. We're going to be more and more willing to evaluate people based on their practical value. Because, you know, we're working hard and we're working smart and we want to get to this point. You know, it's the conundrum, and I actually probably watched way too much, too many movies this past uh, weekend, but it was, it was another question that was asked when somebody was, you know, they were kind of talking about the future of how we're all, you know, how we, we can all just get along and how we can all just be tolerant of one another and get along. And then, and then somebody asked, one of the characters asked, like, well, what did you do with the people who didn't want to get along? What did you do with them? Well, usually we take shortcuts. We try to re-educate them, and if we can't re-educate them, we... We marginalize them, and if we, they still won't shut up, we, we, we get rid of them. Humanity still thinks the problem is outside of us. No, the problem is inside of us. Luke is showing this in this story. He's showing us that this is Paul. Paul who by any standards would be considered this incredible person. He was on the path to being like a superstar Pharisee. But he gets transformed by Jesus Christ. And Luke is showing us that if we have a world full of Pauls, it's better than a world full of Roman soldiers. If we have a world full of people transformed by Jesus Christ like Paul, it's better than a world full of sailors who are just thinking about saving their own lives. It's better than a world full of people who are just so afraid that they're paralyzed and they can't do anything and they've just given up. 
Luke is showing us this, this comparison between who Paul is and that Paul did not get this way by just being Paul. He got this way because he had been transformed by Jesus Christ. Understand this point. Luke is not presenting Paul as a great man. He's presenting Paul as a man transformed by a great God, great Savior, great Lord. This isn't a biography praising the greatness of Paul. No. If, if, if you think that, you're missing the point of Luke and you're missing the point of the gospel and you're missing the point of Christianity. So in this situation, in the midst of a storm, what does Paul do? What does he show us that someone who, trans, who is transformed by Jesus Christ, what do they do? Well, in verse 35, in the middle of the storm, he doesn't just say eat. In verse 35, it says, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. This is something I know the world doesn't understand, that we should thank God even in the midst of storms. I, I understand this wrong mentality about praying, that we think God only answers prayer when he does what we want. What's wrong with us, right? Oh, God answered prayer. I prayed for somebody to get healed. They got healed. No. God doesn't just answer prayer when, we, when it works out the way we want it. In fact, sometimes our prayers are so wrong that it would be wrong for God to make them come true. But you see, the flip side of that is that people who aren't Christians, they also will believe that and they'll use that as criticism of Christians. They'll say, when you're praying for something to happen and you know people are saying, you're in our prayers and all this other stuff, you will find, and it's usually these um, you know, chat room heroes, they'll just, they'll just say stuff like, oh, so I guess prayer didn't do any good because it didn't work. I guess, you know, God didn't make your life and make your business successful. Oh, God, God, you know, there must, you know, why are we praying? Why are we doing any of that? And it's this, this idea that we can only believe in God and we can only trust God if he gets us out of storms. Remember, Paul is praying while it's still dark. It's still storming. In the midst of a storm, some people would be like, God, where are you? Why did you abandon us? Now, Paul, he says, I've learned to be content in all situations 
That's why Paul, when he's, after he's been beaten and he's in, he's in jail, he's down there singing. That's why Paul, when, he's, when he eventually gets to Rome, he's just going to be like, he's going to be like, hey, all right, I can't leave this room, but you know what? People can come here. Let's go. He's not making excuses. He's not saying like, oh, man, I got a lot of me time here for two years. I can just hang out. Maybe I'll get really good at Wordle or something. No. He's like, okay, I can only minister in this box. I'll minister in this box. Here, standing on the deck of this ship in the middle of the dark, in the middle of a storm, he gives thanks. He doesn't just say, here's some bread, eat it. He gives thanks to God. And what we see is we see Paul extending grace. We see Paul extending grace to others. You know, because Paul could have just thought like, you know what? I got a little food in my pocket. I remember I put a little, you know, candy bar in my sleeve. I'm going to eat it, not tell anybody. No, he understands that I can't just do this for myself. I can't just tell my, my few friends. He says to all of them, he has grace to all of them. And why can Paul have grace towards people who want to kill him? It's because he's received grace from Jesus Christ who he wanted to kill. He understands grace because he's received grace. Many people would be thankful after the storm, but here Paul is thankful in the midst of the storm. And I don't want you to mix, miss this picture. Some people like, like to like play around and say, like, well, this sounds like the Lord's Supper. Did he have the Lord's Supper while on the deck? No. Because they couldn't have gotten those little wafer caps off. It would have just been so hard. It was dark. It had been wet and slippery. No, no, it's, it's, it's not that. But you know what is going on there? Paul is doing something incredible. In the middle of a storm, he's doing something normal. He goes, I see He's inviting them to a meal. That was, that was a personal thing to do. It wasn't just eat to eat. It's a meal. It's a meal as a group, sharing this meal together. Paul is in some ways kind of giving them hope. Because honestly, I'm sure it wasn't like this gourmet meal so honestly, if you think you're going to die, why are you eating? Might as well just die. It's giving them hope. The Old Testament talks about things like this, where it talks about how you know when peace has come. Peace has come because people are getting married, people are having babies, you know, crops are producing. That's how you know. And sometimes the Bible doesn't say peace, but it just describes those things. Well, here in the middle of the storm, Paul is, is extending to them his confidence. Let's eat. Let's eat. And let's thank God. 
The second thing we see, in, and, and to see some of this, we, we're going to have to back up in a bit, but we see it in verses 36 through 38 here. And that his grace in this storm is a witness to everyone else. Is a witness to everyone else. Notice in 36, um, I mean, sorry, from 35 through 38, he's saying he's giving thanks to God. He's giving thanks in the, in the midst of this. He's, he still believes in his God, and he doesn't believe by eating this food that it's going, now God is going to save them. He's already said up front, before he ever prayed to God, he already said up front, oh, God told me we're saved. Don't worry about it. We didn't have time to cover this as closely last week, but if we jump back a few verses to 21 through 26, when he's sharing this vision that he has with them. And he says, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. If Paul wanted to show what an awesome prophet he was, or if he wanted to take command of the situation and then afterwards everybody be thankful to him, he would have ended right there. He would have just said, we're going to make it safe. I guarantee it. No. He doesn't say, I guarantee it. He goes, for this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. This isn't about Paul. It's about God. That God cared about me so much and in fact cared about you so much that he sent a messenger and the messenger said, don't worry. You're going to lose the ship. You're going to lose all the goods. But no one's going to die. And he says, God has granted you all those who sell with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God. He's not saying I have faith in myself, I have faith in my knowledge of weather, of ships, I, you know. No. Into utter darkness, they're looking. He has no way of knowing. He just says, look, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. It's not just that Paul is this, this person who's just a strong person, strong leader, thinking of others. It's that he's, he's reminding them again and again, it's not me, it's God. As he'll say in some of his letters, he'll say, it's not me, it's Christ in me. And I'm not going to tell you that Paul might not have just naturally been a better person than a lot of us. 
But Paul is recognizing the reason he can stand on the deck of a ship that he's a prisoner on the way to see see Caesar and to be imprisoned. In the midst of a storm, in the midst of the dark, he's saying the reason I can say these things with confidence is because of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. It's pretty amazing. The last point is kind of this interesting point that it's hard to know is how strongly Luke wants to make this point. But when we read verse 42, it says, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim and escape. There are some commentators who say like, all the people became Christians on the ship and they had the Lord's Supper together. Well, this is evidence that that's not true. And it's also evidence of this greater point which Luke has been making throughout the book of Acts and which Paul makes in his writings, salvation is the work of God. Salvation is the work of God. You see, the Roman soldiers have stood in the presence of this man who is demonstrating great faith and how things are actually playing out exactly how he said. And they don't even believe the earthly part of it. What makes you think they gave their hearts to Christ? They didn't. They had abundant opportunity, but they don't. They're still thinking of themselves. They're still thinking about what happens if the prisoners escape. They're still wanting to to deal with this, even though Paul has not dealt with them in any way that's normal to them. They still want to deal with this as business as usual. Thanks, Paul, for getting us to shore Afraid you might escape, you know. Thanks, but no thanks. I still believe strongly that we know of at least one person who becomes a believer, and that's Julius, the, you know, the the centurion. But I'm not sure at this point that that's happened. And I think it's something that we need to remember as followers of Christ. We need to remember as a church. And we need to remember it both in terms of our own lives, but also in terms of our ministry. And that is that salvation is the work of God. In my own life, I need to to not give in to the temptation that somehow I'm generating my own righteousness. That that it's because I have become a devoted student of the word that now I am holier. No. It's the work of God. I should be a devoted student of the word. But the real spiritual transformation that goes beyond just ideas and changing my habits, but actually changing my character, changing my values, my worldview... That's the work of God.
So we need to remember this internally. Salvation is the work of God. But we also need to understand this. Salvation is the work of God in our ministries as a church. Events and words do not save people. This is the work of the Spirit. It doesn't mean we shouldn't want to put on quality events. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't want to, you know, like, ah, I don't need to prepare. I can just come up here and say whatever and God will work. No, it doesn't mean that at all. I'm still asked to bring my best. You're still asked to bring your best efforts. And we're asked to be diligent in our study, diligent in our love, diligent in preserving the unity. But we must always remember salvation is the work of God. Not my events, not my programs, not my ministries. Those might draw people. Those might get people's attention. Those might begin conversations, important conversations that people need to have. All those things might happen, but if true salvation is going to happen, that is the work of God. And let me tell you, if you ever get a front row seat to seeing how God transforms someone's life, it's amazing. It's amazing. You might have that story yourself. You might know that the person you are today is in the completely different place than where you know you were headed. You might know people like this. It's the story of Paul we see again and again. Salvation is the work of God. Our job is to proclaim the gospel. Our job is to, to study and know the gospel. Our, study, our, our job is to live the gospel. Salvation is the work of God. You will never hear me and I'm, I don't like to speak for John, but I'm pretty confident you'll never hear John measure the success of our church based on how many people are in attendance, how many services we have, how many baptisms we've had, none of that. Even if that were taking place, why am I taking credit for it? If people are getting saved, why am I taking credit for it? Why are we as a church taking credit for the work of God? No. If we're going to evaluate who we are as a church, it goes back to, do, do we know the gospel? Are we studying the gospel with all we are? Is the gospel at the heart of what we do? Harder to measure, hard to put on a little spreadsheet, but it's what I do. And it's because I realize very early in my Christian walk, salvation is the work of God. 
So we see Paul, this example of faith, this example of grace in the midst of this storm, but it's not because of who Paul is. As Luke makes it really clear, it's because of what God has done for him and what God is doing in him. And I think that should be our prayer. I think our prayer should be God, we might not ever be in situations like Paul. We might not ever be in the midst of a, of a raging storm where there seems to be no hope. But God, wherever we are, wherever we are, help us to be your witness. Whether it's hard, whether it's easy, whether it's great, full of joy, whether it's full of darkness and sadness, help us to be your witness in every situation.